0: These may be challenging times, but have hope and listen to the untold health stories about incredible people who have committed their lives to better their communities. Diverse health activists, direct medical providers, community organizers that are helping our communities to get healthier and stronger. Stories of local heroes during the pandemic and even before that proves over and over again that people can come together during times of need and make the world a better place. Stories you would never hear of, except at Healthcare Untold, hosted by Barbara Ann Garcia. Welcome to Healthcare Untold, uh, Dr. Lee.
1: Thank you for having me, Barbara.
0: Well, we're so honored to have you uh, today as our guest and to hear about your important research and your primary care services that you provide uh, utilizing medication-assisted treatment for substance use disorder. And, um, but we always like to start our podcast by asking about your own career journey um, and hearing about um, why you've committed your work to uh, substance use treatment.
1: Great, well, thanks for having me. Uh, again, my name's Josh Lee. I'm in uh, New York City at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. I've uh, been there a long time. I'm an academic uh, researcher, uh, physician, and a medical provider in the public hospital system in New York City. I work um, at Bellevue Hospital, seeing patients doing primarily addiction medicine. I run a training program uh, for addiction medicine doctors at NYU and Bellevue. And then I also represent um, a company, a private company, or Health OAR, and that is an alcohol treatment um, product uh, that involves medication. So it kind of ties all my work together. But yeah, thanks for the question about my journey. Uh, I, uh, I grew up in Tennessee. Um, I was interested in kind of, I liked math and science. I was, a, you know, I liked school. Um, uh, my parents were both academics. Uh, so I had a lot of advantages and, you know, privilege uh, as I rose up as a student and um, was thinking about career tracks. I went to medical school in Tennessee and then went to New York City to Bellevue Hospital for my residency in internal medicine with a primary care focus. Uh, Eventually, that became primary care plus addiction. A lot of the work we were trying to do in primary care in my early career was build out more addiction treatment, primarily medication-based addiction treatment, in primary care, which was a relatively new thing. Uh, Something we could have been doing for longer, but uh, really took off with the uh, introduction in the United States of buprenorphine products, uh, a.k.a. Suboxone, that was the first branded product for opioid use disorder, coincided with the opiate epidemic getting worse and worse each year. Uh, and we were tasked uh, with doing more about it in a general care setting. And that meant prescribing a lot of buprenorphine. Eventually, uh, extended release naltrexone was another product we could use in primary care. And that's alongside methadone, which was a longstanding treatment. But of course, we can only prescribe that for opiate use disorders in an opiate treatment program, aka a methadone clinic. And we can I cannot pre- prescribe that to you in primary care to maintain you on methadone for an opiate use disorder. So that's also been a lot of my research. And I had a, um, a lot of time spent in the New York City jail system uh, in the kind of first half of my career. So as soon as I was done with medical residency, I was eligible to moonlight or pick up shifts as kind of a primary care, urgent care, and sometimes addiction doctor in the jail system in New York. I was fascinated by that. Um, I had never been incarcerated. My background, a lot of family members not addicted and not involved in the criminal justice uh, system and kind of as an outsider, uh, I wanted to know more about it, and I got a lot of positive feedback in what can be a very kind of negative, tough, not fun to be in environment. I always kind of liked it, working in jail, um, not because jails are beautiful or smell good, uh, but because if I was there to help a patient, that was that was a fairly powerful thing. Uh, people in jail are not expecting a lot of friendly faces, a lot of help, a lot of listening. They're used to you know, being told kind of the opposite and not being encouraged to, um, take care of their health. So if you could, if you could sit there and say, wait a minute, let's work on this together. Um, we're going to start a treatment plan that you didn't get to, uh, before you were incarcerated and kind of make something out of, a, a a period of incarceration, which nobody volunteers for. Um, uh, but to make it more, productive and healthy. That really fit into addiction treatment. So we've done a lot of work with the New York City jail system on, uh, uh, hey, let's start the medications now before you leave. And maybe this is a shot at um, staying on methadone this time around, uh, uh, starting a new uh, newer medication like uh, buprenorphine and then come see me at Bellevue. Like that's, that's where I'm otherwise practicing. So now you can be our patient at Bellevue and we'll try and keep you on this. And uh, obviously we're trying to avoid people going back to heroin and now fentanyl slash heroin use, um, trying to prevent overdoses, but really trying to to make something out of um, say a, a jail sentence or a detention period that could otherwise be you know wasted time counterproductive time and there's so much kind of negative effects of incarceration uh it it felt good to me in terms of kind of a public health mission to try and make that more productive so here I am. I still do a lot of that same stuff. Yeah. Uh, my day to day is research at NYU and at Bellevue Hospital, and then I am also science advisor at Or Health. Or Health takes uh, one of those medications, naltrexone, but is applying it to alcohol. Uh, so the other thing I've done and thought a lot about is just general alcohol treatment yes. in primary care. Again, so I can't um, I can't offer AA meetings at Bellevue Hospital. And uh, I don't run a licensed specialty treatment program like a drug and alcohol rehab, which is usually staffed with a lot of counselors and patient navigators and peers, and then may or may not have psychiatrists and other physicians. In primary care, though, I can do a ton for alcohol. And that's kind of the model that OR is, is doing through an app, through a website, and through kind of direct-to-consumer, um, just trying to get more people in treatment with an effective medication for uh, alcohol use disorders.
0: Well, I want to thank you personally for your commitment to the populations that you're serving, particularly in jail. And, um, you know, it's, it's it's really a good time for us in terms of new medications available for people uh, mm-hmm. for substance use disorders. And uh, for many, many years, uh, those medications were not available. And a methadone, as we know, was one of the most controlled uh, medications and primary care cannot uh, even provide it for individuals mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with uh, heroin addiction and other opioids. And mm-hmm. um, and so it's so important in the work that you're doing and really providing, uh, you know, trying to destigmatize uh, these uh, disorders um, as medical conditions um, and how important it is to get access to these medications. And mm-hmm. so I wanted us to start because so many people that I've worked with over in my career um, have, you know, don't believe that there's a way out of addiction and have so much uh, negativity around uh, their lifestyles and also just them personally when you have an addiction. And so let's just start with what is substance yeah. use disorder?
1: Uh, it's really kind of repeated use of chemical A or any type of thing you're going to ingest or, or behavior even that you're going to do over and over that is um, kind of clearly harmful. Uh, And that you kind of know is harmful, but you're unable to cut back or change, reduce or quit. So that that same definition works for tobacco, alcohol, methamphetamine, gambling. Uh, More kind of nouveau would talk about overeating, sex, Internet, smartphone addictions. Um, I'm not addicted to water because there's no clear harm unless I have a real Odd pathology where I'm overusing water. I have to have it. It's part of life on earth and part of the human species. But that is not an addiction just because I'm using something over and over. Uh, if I am a smoker and I I've heard the lectures, uh, I know it could give me lung cancer. My dad died of heart failure, and I've tried to quit and uh multiple times stop for a little bit, come back to it. That's more or less what would qualify as an addiction. I, I keep doing it almost involuntarily because I I know I could make better choices, but I'm unable to kind of make that kind of behavior change. Um, and so that's a general kind of framework for do I have an opiate use disorder? Lots of us have used opiates in our lifetime, often through prescription medications. And we, um, we all can have opiate effects, such as uh, I felt a little... Loopy doopy. Um, I, uh, I I took it for a week after my surgery and had a building tolerance. Um, after I had been on it for a broken hip, I had withdrawal. Like I, I I felt like I had the flu and had some diarrhea when I was coming off it. Just feeling the effects of a drug or using it for a time when it's uh, again in this example prescribed medically, that does not meet the criteria for for addiction. Um, and when people use say alcohol socially, a, a legal drug uh, that um, is one of the most commonly used, or for now, we could talk about legal cannabis. Um, it can be, it, you might want to do a little bit more digging and interviewing to come up with if you meet criteria for a, a use disorder. Um, most of the time, though, there's not a lot of healthy benefits to cigarette smoking, cocaine use, uh, heroin and fentanyl uh, use, um, and it, it's not the same. it's not as if just use of something that's bad, uh, creates an addiction, but, um, oftentimes kind of regular use of a, of a subject that's really just, you know, something that's purely toxic, like cigarette smoke. Um, even though you could say there's some benefit for people, uh, to be on nicotine, uh, that, that often kind of can qualify as a, as a, as an addiction, just kind of repeated use of something that's clearly kind of harmful, and, and you know it is. Um, but that's that's where we're at with with addiction mm-hmm. science and how we kind of screen for this, and um, and then ultimately diagnose it and treat it in a healthcare setting. Um, you need to meet certain criteria, but it, it generally sums up as you keep doing something that is harming you, um, and it involves in the in the case of substance use, putting in some chemical or substance uh, into your body.
0: Yeah. Well, let's start with alcohol use. You know, there's mm-hmm. uh data that shows over 140,000 people die each year of alcohol use. Yeah. And, um, you know, we don't have, you know, a real understanding of it, but mm-hmm. we also don't think that there's something we can do about it other than AA and mm-hmm. try to go through that process, but there's new medications. I wanted you to take a moment yeah. to talk to us about that.
1: Absolutely. Um yeah. Alcohol is, is so interesting because it's, you know, that humans have used it forever. It is a naturally occurring substance. If, if carbohydrates and sugars ferment, you get alcohol and then it has brain effects that, um, you know, can be quite novel and exciting and, and we can all like it. Um, uh, I, I use alcohol and I, I try to use it in a, mindful, enjoyable way, uh, and not to overuse it. Um, but also personally like recognize how easy it is to, to kind of overuse it, um, and, and create kind of uh, a habit and, and dependency. So, um, most of us that use it in the United States don't qualify for an alcohol use disorder, but, uh, a, a pretty large proportion uh do do drink heavily do you know drink um to the extent that we call it binging on a regular basis uh, and then um meet criteria for more severe disorders that um, we used to call alcohol dependence and in current um criteria would be a moderate or severe alcohol use disorder mm-hmm. uh, and that's that's upwards to, Six to ten percent of the U.S. adult population would kind of qualify for treatment. Uh, you know, reimbursable treatment. Uh, you could walk into a treatment center and enter a program. Uh, I and mean, it might be appropriate to use a medication. And the one I mentioned already is Naltrexone. There are others that are labeled uh, by the FDA for alcohol treatment. Those include Acamprosate and Disulfiram. Uh, but now, Naltrexone is one that we—it's kind of since the 2000s have have focused on as probably the cheapest, safest, easiest to take, and possibly most effective medication to try. It's typically prescribed as a once a day pill. Uh, you take it like another any other pill. Um, it has a pretty benign side effect profile, uh, meaning most people tolerate it pretty well. Mm-hmm. And for for On average, it's better than nothing and better than placebo. It does not work for everyone. It's not a miracle cure. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is something that most people that drink heavily on a regular basis and want to make a change should consider using. Uh, What it does is it blocks the opiate receptor in our brain. So different neurochemicals work at different receptors uh, in different areas and different cell lines in our brain. There's an opiate receptor system in our brain. That's where heroin works. It's where morphine works. Um, And that helps reduce uh, pain and kind of the sensation of pain in our brain. It also creates euphoria, getting high. Uh, and then ultimately shuts down parts of our brain that help us breathe. And that's an opiate overdose. Mm-hmm. That's all kind of happening in our brain. Opiates don't like stop your lungs from working. They stop your brain from telling your lungs to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we stop, if we block uh, certain types of the opiate receptors, we can stop the immediate effects of morphine or heroin uh, or fentanyl. And that's one reason we use naltrexone you know, for opiate treatment. It also happens that alcohol has, when it's in our brain, it really kind of pickles our brain. It saturates and, and plugs into a lot of different neuroreceptors and, and neurotransmitter systems. But it, for some of us, alcohol is a bit opiate-like. We like and repeat alcohol use because of opiate-like effects, and, and that is in part mediated by the actual opiate receptors. And if we block those receptors with naltrexone, um, we can dent the effects of alcohol acutely. Like if I have a drink after I've been treated with naltrexone, it's not as tasty. I wasn't looking too forward to it as much in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't feel as buzzed, um, possibly. Uh, and I might feel a little kind of full or not, not like acutely nauseous, but I just like don't have the, the appetite and the kind of gut uh, where I want to have three more drinks all of a sudden, which might've been my problem originally. Mm -hmm. Um, So on naltrexone, it kind of like turns down the volume on your relationship to alcohol, your kind of immediate expectation of alcohol-based rewards. And then if you're not using, I'm not drinking today or it's been a week and I've been on naltrexone the whole time, uh, a typical patient story would be, I'm just not thinking about it, obsessing urging, craving, dreaming, anticipating that next drink like I used to. Um, and so that's that's what we want when you start naltrexone for treatment. But that's one example of like using a medication in a pretty simple, effective way that almost any any licensed prescriber, uh, physicians and non-physicians like PAs, NPs, um, anyone with a prescription pad can write for naltrexone, which is a not a controlled substance, and the pill is available generically. Um, And it's and we've had this on the shelf for decades. But as you may be unsurprised to learn, we're not actually prescribing it that much. Uh, Most doctors feel they've probably not been trained well enough or it's not really in their scope of practice. Um, And so you just don't you don't see a lot of patients kind of getting turned on to it, hearing about it or a lot of, uh, say, primary care practices using it routinely. That's been my career trying to write papers and a commentary in a journal that says, hey, hey, docs, why don't we write for more of this naltrexone stuff for alcohol? Um, And that is the whole point of OR, which is a business, which is saying nobody's doing this, so we're going to try and do it. And that's going to send you, uh, uh, you know, an ad on your phone or uh, you'll do a Google search because you're finally interested in treatment and our our site will pop up. And then if you're interested, um, there's kind of a questionnaire, a form. Somebody's going to read that and then prescribe to you if if, if appropriate, and then a bottle. And now is going to show up in the mail, and that's that's kind of a new, internet-y way uh, to <laughs> yeah, yeah. to start a medication that's otherwise probably safe, um, and relatively low cost. And we've seen that with lots of other medications, um, and particularly for stigmatized conditions. You know, the ones you're all familiar with from the ads you get are like erectile dysfunction. I get I'm I'm fifty. 52 so i get that one a lot um hair loss uh another one for guys my age um and the like and those are conditions that like people just aren't always comfortable talking to a doc about right, um right. it's it's 10th on the list uh although it, for me it's number 1 but first i got to talk about my hypertension diabetes and i got to get a colonoscopy that's what your doctor wants to talk about right um but for me like uh, it's I really would like to talk about ed, but I never bring it up. Um and so right. the this this kind of new form of direct to consumer um, medical treatment um, is is the space that or is in and trying to do it for alcohol, notroxin.
0: Well, that's really great because I do think that um people are have a lot of shame around it, right? And for sure, and not so that's the patient view. But then the provider view, which you're trying to work on is really, um, and I've worked with a lot of primary care physicians that when you try to open that door of addiction or mental yep. health, they don't feel like they have the tools, the toolbox for it. And yep. uh, and there are. And there there are plenty of tools for that. So yep. it is such important work that you're doing and trying to engage our primary care system to you know expand their service, particularly yep. around the needs of their patients who um, for I'm sure. Sure are suffering in front of them and they don't uh, really explore that as much.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned the all the the number of deaths per year attributed to alcohol. Um, And, you know, it's in some sense, it's probably many fold larger than that. Mm -hmm. Alcohol and, of course, cigarettes um, are two, you know, in addition to opiates, those are kind of like the big three addictions that we think about a lot and have medications that we can treat. Those contribute to a ton of cancer and cardiovascular deaths. As a primary care doctor, I was kind of raised to like, let's prevent cancer and let's prevent cardiovascular events. So we're going to treat diabetes, hypertension. Smoking definitely was part of that conversation. Um, But let's think about more like overweight and weight reduction, getting people to exercise, getting them to eat better, and then getting them on all the different meds for cholesterol, diabetes, and hypertension, and then get a lot of cancer screening, mammography, colonoscopy, uh, and the like. That, That was kind of, what my career was supposed to be as a primary care doc, that was really blind to, well, if you're really thinking of all this prevention, like you gotta, um, you gotta tackle alcohol, cigarettes That's right. That's right. Uh, and other addictions. And you have to do that at the same time, or that might be actually the modifiable risk factor that you get the most out of. And yet, um, am I good at talking to patients about smoking? That was kind of a app that was, a focus, but not really the focus of my medical training. And this is like med school in the nineties and residency training, uh, 99 to 2002. And those were at like high quality institutions that, you know, are producing, you know, leading doctors. Uh, and, and yet, um, it really was not, um, you know, part of the the kind of mainstream thinking that, treating addiction was central to just improving overall lifespan, improving quality of life in the general population, not just the homeless guy who we see in the ER all the time. And clearly has an alcohol problem. That was kind of like, that was addiction uh, mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. a lot of kind of American medical training when I was growing up. But that, is, that is not, that is not addiction. Addiction is like so many more people. Um, and again, back to the alcohol, you know, about one in 10 people should be talking to their doctor right now about alcohol treatment. And that's not the numbers that you see in terms of people in treatment or the number of prescriptions going out per year, the number of of visits coded for alcohol and primary care in Southern California yesterday, like it's just not going to approach 10%. Um, and until we get there, we're under treating it and kind of under recognizing it.
0: And people are suffering um, needlessly in many ways uh, because sure. of the lack of access of primary care and their primary care doctors not having uh, that in their toolbox to, to support people. Yeah, um, I wanted, I really want to get into the ORE health, but I'd like to mm-hmm. hear uh, your thoughts about uh, the our whole fentanyl uh, issue that's going yeah. on and uh, the medications for that. And mm-hmm. also the fact that, um, you know, primary care can play an essential role. Yes in this. So
1: um yep. share with yeah, Be sure Yeah, fentanyl has been an absolute unmitigated disaster, hands down. Um it's been my view of it is that it makes a lot of business sense for um for narco organizations to have promoted the use of fentanyl in the United States and Canada. Um oddly, it is not heavily used in other large illicit opiate markets such as Europe and Asia. Um, so it seems to be unique to the Western hemisphere and in particular the northern Western hemisphere that could change but that's certainly been like the last 20 years so somebody we've had fentanyl outbreaks uh, since I've been a physician and thinking about opiates um in the ne, earlier than I practiced but the 80s 90s and 2000s there would be a bad batch in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. or Baltimore and it would turn out that someone had mixed in some fentanyl or reminder it's not pure medical fentanyl we're talking about. It could be that, but it could be um, a lot of fentanyl analogs. There's almost, there's hundreds of them that could be um, uh, cut into the illicit heroin or other opiate supply. And then that, and then you you can't use it safely. There's no safe use on the street of fentanyl. You can try, you can think you know what you're doing. Uh, I personally am not a person who uses um, heroin or has in the past, but, um, you know, I talked, I talk to patients and we do studies and this is, these are the stories we hear. Um, You just don't know what's in one bag to the next. And Mm -hmm. it's really, you can do like a fentanyl test strip or you could try a little bit and you can use with a friend Uh, and uh, and you can do kind of safe using protocols, but you're still rolling the dice on a daily basis with um, what's out there now. In the New York City market, there's still a little bit of heroin, like when we do urine testing. Uh, or drug testing, but there's, um, there's complete kind of saturation of fentanyl. So when you're using opiates now illicitly in most parts of the country, you're using fentanyl, and you may be using other opiates, but you're, you're almost always using fentanyl. It's just too powerful a drug. In toxicology, the separation between the dose I want to feel good or get high or not be sick is way too close. It's just below the dose that's going to kill me. Because it's so powerful, I'll just take too much and I'll stop breathing, and that's a that's an opiate overdose. So it's a terrible drug. Um, it's it has its uses. Fentanyl itself in medicine, and it's a great anesthetic and pain control drug in the hospital, and we'll we should continue to use it for. Forever. Um, But we um, we don't need to use it in in the street supply of opiates, in counterfeit Xanax pills or however else people are ingesting it. Um, Putting the toothpaste back in the tube is next to impossible until like we really have like a peace conference with the cartel um, and uh, and really kind of get a grip on a kind of safe supply of illicit opiates, which is kind of an absurd oxymoronic thing to say. But as a matter of kind of like national drug and health policy, I think that's a direction that merits attention. Uh, Because it's just too um, cheap and easy to make. Um, Like you and I could study a chemistry book, probably source the chemicals and start to make it in our basement, you know, within a year, if we really wanted to do that, and then we could try and sell it. And that could be our little, you know, illicit fentanyl business. It's not hard to To make this stuff and the precursor chemicals are widely used in industry and pharmaceutical um, processes so it's you can't uh, the way that we stopped uh, a lot of like home cooking of meth was to restrict pseudoephedrine that Mm -hmm. was much easier Mm -hmm. to do because that had to come from specific factories that were like five in the world and we pretty quickly moved pseudoephedrine off the market it didn't stop methamphetamines from being produced But all the production had to move kind of out of the backwoods and down to Mexico. Um, But uh, that has happened with fentanyl. You can make it um, illicitly. You can import it from China. That's obviously happened a lot. Uh, And then it's just you just make too much money. Uh, You know, a, a brick of fentanyl will get New York City high for Right. a long time right. whereas that right. used to just be a day's worth of one neighborhood's heroin consumption so it's too easy to transport to ship to smuggle uh it doesn't you don't need a poppy field and a kind of processing facility to make it which is the case with heroin uh, that's a kind of an agricultural product um no you don't need any of that um with fentanyl so like why why wouldn't why wouldn't a drug trafficking organization you know, try and sell you fentanyl. They're just going to make that much more money, which is which is the whole point. So that's tough. Like, how do we how do we stop that? I don't have the answers, but I think it's it's like kind of a national policy question. And then and then it's an education question amongst um, the general population, just to kind of be aware that, you know, in this case, like Telling all the middle schools about it and um, early education and prevention efforts, um, whatever we can do that might work, um, is, is also a good place to start. With drug epidemics, we wonder if this will burn out. That is, will it kind of, you know, not to make light of it or anything like that, it's a complete you know, national tragedy. It's had horrible effects on our national life expectancy, but will it, will it kind of wipe out those that use it? And then they will not be replaced with new users. Um, that may that may still happen, and um, that would be a way for it to go away. That is, it still is profitable to sell it, but nobody wants to buy it anymore because they've realized that it's um, that it's going to kill them. And that's not right. why they're trying to use drugs in the first place. And you'd
0: think that the drug uh, cartels would know that they don't want their users to die, right? Because yeah, I, you and- know
1: it's. It's short term uh, because you are going to start killing your customers, but that probably clicks with those types of organizations. They're not long term Fortune five hundred strategy based businesses, Um, and it's more about the here and now and the cash flow. And that um, it would make sense then that they don't really care. You know, like obviously they're they're selling fentanyl and heroin to begin with and methamphetamines, etc. So. You know the the health of the customer is not first and foremost um on their mind but you're you're absolutely right and that's that's that is one pathway in which this might get better um not unlike the crack cocaine uh epidemic if we want to call it that from the 90s which was not replaced with generations and generations of crack cocaine users say in in New York City where it's been a huge problem and still is. I'm not, it, crack cocaine did not go away and it's still a um, yes. quite common drug yes. um, drug to use in New York, uh, for instance. But um, the um, the older generation using crack in the 90s, their children did not uniformly adopt crack cocaine use. And so rates of use actually never kind of kept going up. And then um, over time, uh, it, it would cut your life short It was also highly toxic, although overdosing was not the exact effect that that, um, got you with with chronic crack cocaine use. Um, But the numbers of new users were not replacing kind of the number of old users um, as they passed away or as they quit using. Um, And so that just has not become the kind of nuclear bomb that was going to destroy Harlem. Um, It certainly has had devastating effects on AA or multiple generations but it did not become like a multi generational, um, you know, uh, mortality epidemic. Um, and with opiates, it we kind of have now established that it's not going anywhere, and it has kind of gotten worse year by year. Uh, it, it is still relatively recent since, like, two thousand, say, five to two thousand ten, when fentanyl really took off. Mm -hmm. that we've dealt we're really dealing out with the fentanyl epidemic so we've transitioned from pills to kind of more Mm -hmm. heroin everywhere to this Mm -hmm. this fentanyl based supply um and maybe um we're we're still waiting for like the the next kind of batch of data from the cdc and have we gotten anywhere we kind of plateaued um and can we start to go down on annual deaths but it didn't it, it looked like it might actually happen that um Uh, Earlier in in the Trump administration, we actually had a tick down of annual deaths. But then with COVID, it ticked right back up uh, and it's been worse than ever. So. So I don't have I don't have great solutions, but I will say you asked about medication treatment, medication treatment still works for fentanyl. So um, it's even more important to have robust accessibility to methadone to buprenorphine products. And to those that want to detox and be drug-free, extended release naltrexone is still a good Mm -hmm, option. mm -hmm. Um, But it it really makes like kind of supporting drug public health and methadone-based treatment, as well as buprenorphine-based treatment, uh, all the more important um, because they still work and they still can treat withdrawal from fentanyl, urges and kind of daily use of fentanyl, all that gets better if you can maintain on treatment. Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, I do think um, I've done a lot of work around working directly with drug users and, mm-hmm. you know, and they um, trying to ensure that we get to them and allow for that opportunity for them. Um, many mm-hmm. people are suffering and they are You know, they just don't want to engage, especially under use uh, with the systems, you know. And so these outreach workers, these, uh, you know, street doctors who are doing uh, this work, it's really important. Primary care physicians, that's the Mm -hmm. first door that people go through. So I do think, you know, trying to work directly with people who are using And you you have a captured audience in many ways in the homeless population to really reach Mm -hmm. them and try Mm -hmm. to, and you know, homelessness kind of encourages that use uh, from not having, you know, stable conditions around them. So um, I think that's a really important medication for people. And it's going to be a a struggle for us to reduce these uh, overdose deaths. Um, And so I do really believe that uh, this medication access, primary care access is really important in the work that you're doing there. Uh, so thank you. for Yeah. That.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And thank you. Um, and and the, the housing and unstable housing and homelessness is such a it's such a um, important topic. It's hard to expect people to get better stay in treatment exactly. if they're exactly. unstably housed. Exactly. And unstable housing, of course, it, it can come from a bad addiction. Like I lost everything. Right. My life That's went right. down the tubes. Now I'm living in my car. Um, but it's also like a, a precursor condition, as you're saying, um, we just don't have enough affordable housing. And then that, that makes people vulnerable to these kinds of, um, healthcare conditions and addiction related, um, harms. Um, and it's, so it's like, it's going both ways. And, um, that would be a way to fix the fentanyl epidemic and reduce overdose deaths would be to have more affordable housing. Like that, that's one of the ends, um, you know, kind of conclusions. Uh, I I don't know if every policymaker would agree with that statement, but, you know, it's one of the things that um, we think about. And I'm fairly convinced of, uh, you know, having done this for about two decades now.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, during COVID, um, I started working on telehealth uh, many years ago and it just wouldn't move. You know, we just couldn't do mm-hmm. that. But during COVID, boy, that telehealth yeah. just kind of stood up. Now we're, now up we're and... <laughs> all
1: telehealthers, yeah.
0: <laughs> right. And so yeah. I can see, especially uh, with our AI coming, technology increasing, that um, this is one of the uh, good outcomes of having technology. And I wanted to hear more about our health and how mm-hmm. that works for people and, uh, you know, really push that kind of model for people to um, really seek out other kinds of healthcare.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, absolutely true. Like our, our practice at a public hospital in New York really didn't have any telehealth. Like, sure. I would talk to you on the phone and get you a refill. Uh, you know, if you left a voicemail, but now we're still since COVID doing a lot of visits, um, via um, televideo and often just the telephone itself. Um, and that's been, um, a kind of like can we really do this? Like, Oh, we can do this. Um, and it's pretty safe and it it is so wildly convenient for a lot of routine medical follow-up refill visits, um, that I think all of us have welcomed that patients have gotten a lot of benefit in terms of time travel connectivity, even to the clinic, um, might've gone up. Um, on the other hand, we, uh, can't always follow up with people and especially vulnerable populations. Um, Uh, people with fewer and fewer resources, it's hard to keep your phone number the same. It's hard to hold on to your cell phone. If you're in and out of like the New York City men's shelters, um, you're at high risk for losing your phone uh, Mm -hmm. regularly. And Mm -hmm. then it is hard to do telehealth. So it's it definitely is something we're still working on for the kind of perfect blend for which patient with or health. It's only telehealth. There's no brick and mortar. You can't come to our strip mall office or into the big medical center to find us um, we are just trying to keep it really kind of lean and um, efficient in that we we think it's safe to do this and um and we think it's really effective so just to say hey what we want to help you there's a lot of things you can do to help yourself including like 12step and AA resources in your community including, trick and mortar, find a doctor, find a social worker, you know, talk to a counselor, join a program near you, talk to your family doctor, whatever it is. Um, but getting the medication, getting access to it, trying it, and then being able to stay on it, if it's something you're interested in, and if you feel it's working, um, that might, you know, in opiate treatment, that might be like 95% of the battle. get you access to methadone and then make it as possible as possible to stay on it Um, with alcohol treatment the same logic applies so if we can get it to you in the mail within a couple days and save you the um, startup cost of trying to get to see a physician if you even have a regular physician Um, You know, and good luck going to urgy Care or the emergency room if you don't have regular medical care and walking out with a prescription for this medication. It just generally is not going to happen. We can we can help with that. And um, and. I don't have like randomized control data to show you, uh, but um, it's been a viable business in the sense that people are interested um, people are busy, but they heard our ad on the radio, and that kind of turned on to the idea of doing something about their drinking. Um, disproportionate to the statistics for drinking, well, a lot of our customers are women, um, and so it might this kind of product might click with um, reproductive age women who are raising kids and running around and balancing family and career and and are drinking too much and that Mm -hmm. is a trend that is highly Mm -hmm. worrisome in terms Mm -hmm. of like deaths related to alcohol and reproductive age women liver transplants kind of Mm -hmm. end-stage alcohol uh, for otherwise healthy women that just especially during covid um really started drinking more and didn't realize or realized too late that 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 was a huge threat to their health Uh, but happily that's been a that's been a pretty strong customer base for or um and we were you know, we're thrilled to be able to possibly be part of a solution to to one of the more worrying trends in alcohol use uh, recently.
0: And so, um, people um, get online with you. Is that the mm-hmm. way they start? And yeah, through the website the
1: or through the app. And there's a intake questionnaire. We we want to prescribe safely. You cannot be on opiates, um, but that's really one of the only medical mm-hmm. contraindications, like chronic pain or opiate treatment on on morphine or I'm on uh, methadone for opiate treatment, you do not want to take naltrexone if you're on an opiate because it's a blocker yeah. and could cause could cause um, acutely unpleasant effects of opiate withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, most of us that are walking around um, are not acutely ill and have a drinking problem are going to qualify in a pretty simple telehealth questionnaire about your health, much like you would fill out before you walk into the doctor's office is going to give us the information we need. Um, we verify your identity because this is a prescription. Um, and then we, um, uh, are going to ask for payment. So this is in our model, it's not reimbursed through your insurance. Mm -hmm. It's not a reimbursable, uh, visit, um, that we're going to talk to your insurance about. So, um, it would be a, a out-of-pocket expense, the mm-hmm. whole episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, the fees we think are reasonable um, and could compare to whatever else it's going to take you to like drive and see a doctor and yada, yada. So we think it, yeah, we think it comes in at a pretty reasonable per month cost. And that also covers the cost of the medication. And then you yeah. get the medication uh, and that's going to come from a mail-order pharmacy, um, which most people are not going to be shocked or, or, find hard to use. Uh, And then we are going to ping you kind of through the app and encourage you and try and get feedback and kind of boost your motivation, you know, to Mm -hmm. try it for a while, probably three or four months is a typical adequate trial of this medication. And if it's working, you probably want to stay on it for a year or longer. It may not be for the rest of your life, but it is something people can use kind of in maintenance fashion to get control and keep control of their alcohol use and that's really it that is or or is kind of a a pretty simple app it's not offering a lot of like live counseling or other treatment of your hep c and your sore foot like we're not trying to be a comprehensive medical provider and we're not offering um live care there are other um uh, uh companies in the space that are more that more of kind of like a a full service, um, see the medical provider in a video visit, telehealth thing. so there's there's different kind of intensity of these telehealth um, commercial operations now. In addition to whatever telehealth you can get from you know big medical center down the road where you might see your doctor already, they're also, you know all the organizations in healthcare are thinking about telehealth and using it to some extent. This would be at the at the low end of intensity and kind of like a, a, a quite kind of minimal approach for yeah. one condition, one medication, and not a lot of um, complex uh, medical care with that. So it's very kind of focused mm-hmm. and simple.
0: Well, I think this is a great example of the future of technology and health and medication Mm -hmm. and access for people. Um, And so I I really think it's a great model for, um, for, and I think this is going to be multiple models that we're going to find in the future as we um, use technology and people are feeling, especially for a stigmatized issue as alcohol and uh, other drug uses, um, you know, they're not, people are shy away from it. They think legally Mm -hmm. they're going to get in trouble. Um, And so I really feel like this is going to be a future model of care for us um and it's great that we've you know yeah. you've started this and to look at the and the research that you're going to be doing from this it could be a uh, show very effective uh, in terms of uh, this issue
1: yeah we hope so and you know one example that we are all familiar with is smoking cessation exactly. uh, we just mm-hmm. never found we could do enough of that mm-hmm. through the hospital or mm-hmm. the doctor the doctor was too busy didn't want to talk about it and you know, I don't even know what a nicotine patch is. And what did we do there? We took a lot of that tobacco settlement money state by state, and we created quit lines. So who cares if you ever see a doctor, but call this number, see our ad, call the number. And then what happened? We put in the mail some nicotine replacement. And if you followed up with their counseling, that was great, but it was just a way to kind of get into people's dwelling uh, Mm -hmm. a bunch of smoking cessation medications or nicotine replacement therapies. And that um, is that is a kind of parallel to what we're doing here with or kind of not trying to replace the medical establishment, but kind of like just offer in an even more convenient kind of direct way. Um, these safe and kind of mailable therapies, they're going to help you with a condition that often people are reluctant, uh, unable, or have had bad experience bringing it up w- in, with the healthcare you know, provider.
0: Yeah, that's really great. Um, so Josh, would you like to give us a couple more minutes of uh, any comments you'd like to make about the work, uh, about your work and your career journey? And um, we really want to thank you for being on our podcast today.
1: Hey, thank you. Yeah. Just always credit, you know, to the patients that I get to work with. Um, It's uh, it's again, like it's it's been to me the the great kind of benefit of my career is just learning, talking and hanging out with people that are not like me, that have had different lives, different upbringings, um, come from different parts of the world. Uh, You know, working in New York City, you're going to you're going to work with all sorts of uh, patients and backgrounds and um, and. To me, that's been the the greatest gift and what I love about you know my career in medicine. And then, in addiction in particular, what I was saying kind of about the jail um, experience, just like being offered, just being able to say, hey, i got I got a plan for that. Like that I, you know you you're using this, that and the other, and and you've never been successful or or had much of a um shot at treatment, like good, I got some good news here. Mm-hmm. It's pretty simple. Uh, there's no guarantees, but, uh, you know, we got some options here and we can kind of treat this like other medical conditions. Like you're probably used to having an infection, getting antibiotics, seeing the doctor, like it is a medical model, but we can now apply that to your opiate use disorder, your alcohol use. Plus we want to get you to stop smoking. Um, what do you think? You don't have to sign up for 90 meetings in 90 days. You don't have to go to rehab, um, you don't, you don't want to tell your family this week that you're getting treatment. Don't like, well, let's, this is you and me, um, working on this, um, you know, kind of patient provider. And that like is continually so fun, like just to be able to connect with people, you know, again, around a condition that they're not used to getting much help with or expecting a lot of positive feedback for, and then not, not reading them the riot act where like, well, you have to go to sober boot camp and that's it. You better quit your job because, you know, you're going to be gone for nine months. And if you don't do it, you're going to die. You know, that. Right. like I never have to. We don't get into that because I'm a primary care doctor. I'll, all I want you to do is come back and see me um, and and give it a shot. And then if it doesn't work, we're going to work on kind of solution number two. Um, so that, that's kind of my summary message, like there, there's the, the treatments for opiates, cigarettes, and alcohol are simpler, easier, and more effective than you, than you know. Uh, and access is not perfect. And the training of your medical provider may have been inadequate, but there is, this does exist. And there are people like me working to kind of make it more uh, widespread and uh, kind of increase awareness and accessibility. The other thing I'd say in, in defense of American medical education, we have gotten better and there's more training That's of right. younger docs, That's nurses, right. PAs, like the, the workforce as it. Yes. As it as it develops over the next 20 years, it, it is doing a lot more for this yes. and and sees it more a part of their, uh, you know, their their job than I think my generation.
0: Yeah, there's a lot more integration of those needs. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, we are just honored to have Dr. Joshua Lee with us today and his commitment and his career to uh, helping those with addiction and providing treatment. And that is such great news, Dr. Lee. So thank you for your work and continue on.
1: Thank you, Barbara. Wonderful to be here today. Healthcare Healthcare, healthcare, Untold.